0: wonderful evening and it's fantastic for uh, Daisy and I to be able to partner with
1: Hands Up for Syria and um, David it's wonderful to see you again Um, but I last saw you in Hay at the end of May Um, things have got worse haven't they?
0: Uh, Yes um, so we run a foundation uh, it's called the David Knot Foundation and we train surgeons from around the world and we bring surgeons from all over the world to come to a course in the United Kingdom but we also take the course to abroad. And since I saw you, I've been in Idlib. Uh, we went to across the border into Idlib with loads of suitcases full of equipment that we're showing the surgeons how to deal with their cases. We from It's uh, an intensive course which deals with um, general surgery, plastic surgery, pediatric surgery, obstetrics and gynaecology, and orthopedics, and so on and so forth. All the things that they would see in their hospitals we're trying to give them the best uh, training they possibly can. So it was fantastic, really. They got uh, 30 surgeons up from uh, southern Idlib. Uh, we were over the border um, and in a Syrian hospital, and we we, we did our four-day course. And also, um, I spoke to the surgeons. I spoke to what's going on and so on and so forth. And the situation there was, to an extent, they said it's... It's, it's bad, but they can, they can cope, and um, what was happening is at the time there was almost carpet bombing of the southern Idlib going north all the way up. The Russians and the Syrian jets were bombing their uh, towns, and, and civilians were were unfortunately being displaced into the countryside, and some of their hospitals were being bombed as well. And of course, you you'd be in touch with them. You're in touch with them all the time, and uh, but the situation is getting worse, and uh, the, si- the, the doctors that we, we trained um, always are in touch with me and telling me what 's happening, and also discussing cases that would they like to just, you know what can we do here, David, and so on and so forth and i 'm always backwards and forwards uh, trying to do what I possibly can. But in the last two days, um, four of their hospitals uh, have been destroyed. And if you look at the statistics, um, this is only in southern Idlib, which is you know, quite a significant uh, area now. It's, it's probably the size of the Isle of Man, uh-huh. really. or um, well the, the southern part of it's the, the Isle of Man. Um, there have been um, 65 hospitals have been destroyed. 51 healthcare workers have been killed. 84 have been injured. And so I'm sort of getting this all the time from my colleagues. And, th- th- of course, OSUM, uh, the Union of uh, Syrian Surgical NGOs, are doing a fantastic job. They're putting out all the time uh, about what's, what's actually happening. Who is reading it? I don't know. But I'm reading it. Um, who else is reading it? Who else can make some some you know, decisions about what's going on? I don't know. And and Osam sent me something from the Washington Post, which was uh, really shocking. Uh, um, there was a, they'd got the transcript of a, a Russian aeroplane um, with um, an air traffic controller talking to the Russian aeroplane, and the Russian aeroplane giving the coordinates of one of the hospitals that had been given to the UN, which had been given, which had been distributed mm-hmm. around the place. So they knew it was a hospital, and the coordinates to the air traffic control, that can I bomb this hospital? The message was, yes, you can bomb that hospital. And they have documented evidence of four bombs blowing up that hospital and completely destroying it. And what happened as a result of the Washington Post publishing that? Nothing. Nothing has happened. And of course, it went to, uh, you know, people said, gosh, this is so horrible, this is terrible. But what happens? Nothing happens. And I, I understand from the Washington Post they went to um, the Russian president and said, you know, your Russian planes are actually blowing up hospitals that are being built, to and they're underground hospitals because they can't afford to have hospitals overground because they're going to be completely destroyed. And uh, the Russian president said, no, it's not happening, and completely denied it. And that was that. That's astonishing.
1: Um, You've been... uh, Your wonderful book, War Doctor, and you were in many places before you found yourself in Syria, but you write a lot about being in Aleppo. Describe to us what it's like actually trying to help people when you were being bombed, when you were in a war zone like that.
0: Well, the hospital I worked in in Aleppo back in 2013 and in 2014 was about 100 yards from the front line. And uh, you could hear... You know gunfire. You could hear shells being dropped. You could hear, you know, the, the the people, things that were happening outside. Ambulances being brought, bringing patients in, and you'd know that if a if a plane had dropped a barrel bomb or a helicopter dropped that there'd be significant amount of casualties being brought in. And I suppose 2013 was different to 2014. 2013 was such that there was. I called it in the book "Sniper City" uh-huh. because there were so many snipers around, and they were picking innocent civilians off. You know, we used to have on our little hospital, you know, which was called M1, which is no longer there, unfortunately. Um, 14, 12 to 14 significant high-velocity, high-energy gun fo- gunshot wounds per day, uh, and when you imagine a small hospital dealing with, and the accident emergency department had no doctors they just had medical students who couldn't then complete their training who were fantastic who were able to put up drips use their ultrasound probes to, um, to uh, diagnose bleeding and they would even tell me which patient that had to go to theatre, they were so good and then it was a matter of training the doctors there to do the work and training them to be able to manage the, their injuries and then going back there And so they became a fantastic group of friends. They were amazing, and I'm still in contact Mm -hmm. with them. But in 2014, the situation was so significantly different because uh, there it was was bombing of the Aleppo itself. And as our last speaker said, the, the beauty of Aleppo was totally destroyed. And the beauty of what was there was only on the front line, which I visited, uh, I visited the old city and the old market and the and the, uh, the, uh, the mosque that was there. I visited the all. the mosque was completely destroyed. Um, the Ayazad Ma- Mosque, which was I think um, the um, I can't remember the name now of the person that, that was involved, but but, <coughs> but it was a an it was eighth century mosque completely destroyed. But the front line of it was still there. The uh, the, the market, the souk, was still there, also destroyed. But you could see the beautiness of Aleppo, but around the other part of Aleppo was it was rubble, totally rubble. And there were you know, hundreds of thousands of people living in, in this rubble. And of course, barrel bombs were being dropped every day on the city and people were being brought in, multiple casualties. You know, it was a dreadful time and still I, I go back to it and sometimes lie in bed thinking about it. We had what in in civilian in civilian populations when you think about it um, 80% of the of the people that were brought into our hospital at that time were children and 80% of the people i dealt with were children having been blown up and that was very difficult to could you
1: save all of them
0: no uh, because the, the problem was is that when a bomb gets dropped on an intense uh, civil, civil society, so to speak. Really, you get these clouds of dust that come up because concrete goes yes. into, you know, tiny dust particles. And of course, people are then affected with the fragmentation wounds, and also need to breathe. So they breathe in all this concrete dust. And of course, concrete dust fills up your lungs, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't hoover it out. So you get these children coming in with covered in dust, and not only covered in dust. You, you try and ventilate them to put them to sleep to try and do the operation, and you can't. And that was the issue. It was so devastatingly tragic to watch children that you could have saved in a in a, an environment if it was just gunshot wounds or something like that, but with an environment whereby it was complete blast injuries, the shock of the of the shock wave of the of the uh, blast plus all the dust, you couldn't save. And we we, we our you know mortality rate went from 2013, which was down to 10%, mm-hmm. went up to 90% in um, 2014. It was just tragic.
1: And you yourself, you, you, I mean you had to exercise your I will help anybody and the time that an ISIS leader got brought in.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have to treat as a humanitarian surgeon. Mm. You know, you go out and... The funny thing is, as a humanitarian surgeon, you go and help... Uh, Probably a side. You can't not help a side, so to speak, really. But you go in there as neutral, apolitical. You know, you're you're there just to help the person that's in front of you, and no matter who that person is that's brought in front of you, if it's if it's a a person from the opposite opposition, if it's a person from you know the the side that you're trying to save or the side that you're that they're protecting you for being in their environment, or even if it's an ISIS fighter. You know, you you've, you've got a human being in front of you, and I, as a doctor, you can't make that decision that I am not going to treat that person or that person. You've just got to treat whoever is in front of you.
1: So, what happened when they brought in that ISIS fighter?
0: So, the ISIS fighter was brought in. Um, he was shot in the chest, and uh, he was uh, in the. Uh, and you didn't know that, presumably? No, at I didn't the time. know he was a, an ISIS fighter, and so. I, I was sitting around downstairs in the operating th- in the operating theatre, and somebody said to me, "David, there's a somebody who's who's bleeding upstairs, and has a significant chest drain with a gunshot wound to his chest." And of course, uh, most of the injuries, even any anywhere in London or whatever, if you've got a stab wound to the chest, you can deal with it most of the time with a penetra- with a, a chest drain. Ninety-five percent of all chest injuries can be dealt with by a chest drain, unless. By
1: what? Chest drain.
0: Chest drain. So it's a drain that you put into the chest. You make a hole in the chest and you put this this drain in. And it drains out the blood. And you wait to see what the hemodynamics of the patient are. If the patient is stable and you give a little bit of blood, and then, okay, the bleeding most of the time stops. But sometimes the bleeding doesn't stop. And then you get a situation, if it's an arterial bleed or it's a major venous bleed inside the chest from the heart or something like that, then the bottle of blood, the bottle that the chest drains attached to, just gets filled up and filled up and filled up. And then you look at the hemodynamics, the patient's blood pressure's going down. He's obviously bleeding, exsanguinating. So that patient needs to go to the operating theatre. And at the time, of course, when you're, a, when you're a surgeon that, you know, I've done it many times before, and, and then you, you say to the, the other doctors, have you ever done one of these before? And they say, no, well, this is the time I'm going to teach you how to do it. And so that patient then came down, um in our little operating theater and um we put him onto the side and i said to A- abu Wasim, who was one of the uh, surgeons i said well you ha- you have you done it no well, i'll teach you so you make your incision here make the incision here put the retractor in open it all up <laughs> and you see where it's all bleeding from put the sucker in sucker in. and as this was going on the doors of the operating theater just bashed open like this and um, six members of ISIS uh, came into the operating theatre with their guns pointing at all of us in the operating theatre. And, of course, what do you do in that situation, really? Um, and then not only that, the, uh, the head of the, the ISIS team came round to the front and was looking in and uh, you know, then made comments in uh, Chechen English um, why are you operating you know, on, on one of our brothers and of course at that time you don't, didn't know and and then it's a very difficult decision to make really um, what you're trying to do is protect yourself protect your patient because you do have to protect your patient that's what you're there for and um, so long and short of it was that it was a very scary moment a really scary moment I mean i, I I'd be honest with you I was shaking a bit and uh, legs were shaking a bit, arms were shaking a bit, and you know, what do you do in that situation? Well, I'm not very religious, but occasionally I think you do have to pray to God. And uh, in that situation, I, I decided to uh, to pray to God, and I said to him, you know, right, you need to help me. You really, really need to help me. <laughs> 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 it's true. <laughs> Uh, I said, you know, you really need to stop my hands from shaking and you really need to stop me from shaking. And uh, it's very strange how how God works in mysterious ways, really. And although I could feel my legs bobbing up and down, my hands did start to get a little bit less shaky. And it was very important to get that stitch in that blood vessel to stop it from bleeding. Because if I didn't, I could have torn it, it could have bled even more. And then, of course, they'd have said to us, well, you've just killed our brother, and who are you, and who are you, and who are you? They so didn't know you were English, presumably. I didn't know. They didn't know I was English or B- Welsh. They didn't know Sorry. I was... Uh,
1: <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sorry. about the rugby. <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't know I was uh, Welsh. And... Um, but it was important to get that stitch in, which, which uh, amazingly, and thank God, I got the stitch in, so everything was okay. The, their phones went off, and they all left. And the Chechen... In fact, they were the worst group out at that time. Were the Chechen ISIS group were the worst. And in, the, in what way the worst? Uh, the most violent? really dreadful. They were really violent and very dreadful. And a few weeks later, they came and dragged somebody down from the stairs... Who fractured both his legs, dragged him out of the hospital, and beheaded him in the street? They were a really dreadful group of people. And how do I think about saving the life of one of those sort of people? Well, I suppose I look at it that you know that it was my job to mm-hmm. save his life, and I've a bit of often been asked, you know, well, you save somebody's life, who can go and kill somebody else, um, but that's not my role. And my role is to do what I. have necessary, and I, and I hope that he would have realized that, that a Christian surgeon you know, had a help in helping some fundamental person change their views. I don't know, but that's the way I think about it these days.
1: Yeah, well, that's... Um, so, what you do now? I mean, I was watching um, some videos of you today, of you sitting in... I don't know whether it's St. Mary's down the road, but watching of someone operating... In Syria and advising them uh, over Skype. How does that work?
0: I mean, it looked extremely. Well, no, it's fantastic because is um, it? it is, well, again, it's, this is another bittersweet story, which unfortunately, Syria is a lot of bittersweet stories. Um, of course, I love helping people, and uh, I mean, uh, just a couple of days ago, I was, <laughs> I was cycling back from St. Mary's when I was on call, and at six o'clock in the evening, the phone goes off and said, David, this is, I uh, know, are you Dr. Knot?" I went, yes, I was on my bicycle, <laughs> and uh, uh, are you a vascular surgeon? Uh, well, I think so, and uh, well, we've got somebody who's like, bleeding to death at the Portland Hospital. Can you come immediately? So how long will you take? Well, ten minutes, so. I thought, and so I just started cycling there. And I used techniques which I'd learned in war surgery uh, to stop the bleeding, pe- to stop this patient who had... When I walked into the operating theatre, there was five surgeons standing there. There was um, 14 units of blood. The blood pressure was very... I looked at the monitor and it was... It, uh, blood pressure normally is 120. This was for her. Her blood pressure was 40 and she was on her way out. So it is a matter... What happened to her? She had had a gynecological procedure and something so terrible had happened and a big blood vessel had been pulled off from somewhere deep down in her pelvis. Right. So the only reason I'm telling you this is because there are... Well, it's a, certainly a message to not go to the port. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> that is true, that is true. <laughs> Actually, I hope there's nobody uh, here thank from the port you from hospital. But anyway... <laughs> But you use techniques that you learn from war surgery which are not available to anybody else, really. So if you, you're, you, you, you use things... I said, you know, have you got this PTFE felt, which is this special felt material? No, we haven't got it. Have you got this needle? No, we haven't got it. Okay, so I'll go back into war surgery mode. Right, give me a pair of scissors. So I cut off a piece of her um, posterior abdominal wall, it's called, to make into little bits of uh, pledgets, they're called, which are these little... Uh, bits of tissue which if you m- if you have two bits of tissue and you push them together and you in the middle of it is a big blood vessel and you push them together like this and put the stitch in you can stop anything from bleeding so I start right big pair of scissors make this and I and everybody's watching and and uh, as I put the needle in uh, with my little pledge and I put it through the other side put it out and went and the, st- and the bleeding stopped and I went right. Thanks a lot, then. And, but <laughs> that's I would an never. an astonishing
1: ha- story. It's
0: astonishing, but that's what's happened on Monday night. But, <laughs> but the astonishing thing is about it is, is, that these techniques that you learn in war surgery are the techniques that you really need to know about, as a surgeon, really. And if so why aren't people taught it? Why do you have to go to Aleppo to learn this? That's a good question. But the th- I mean, we suppose we're supposed to have. You know, equipment in various hospitals and sometimes you don't have them and sometimes you need to save somebody's life within five minutes or that patient will have died and that patient no doubt will have died. So the techniques I use I've been, I had taught other surgeons how to use when you don't have that equipment, when you don't have that things in front of you, when you don't have the right equipment you have to use things that you would never use anywhere else but that save that person's life but going back to Aleppo going back to um, uh, why do you you know, training surgeons over Skype again it's a fantastic thing to do it's being able to train surgeons that you've trained before and being able then to um, to teach them over Skype an operation they phone me up saying David we've we got a patient with no jaw they've lost his jaw can you help us so I say, okay um, so they get, sent me all the pictures. They even had a CT scan in Aleppo at the time. Uh, Sa- Syrian American Medical Society had even donated. And they, even got a, they even had the equipment to, over from Turkey to build a CT scan. So they had that in Aleppo. So he had a CT scan. He had no jaw. He had no nothing. But he was getting in severe infections. And it was really, he was on his way out, so to speak, if nothing could be done. So I took, uh, So all his equip- all his photographs came with me. And I took it to 10... If you, te- you take a picture of what should you do to 10 surgeons, you'll get 10 different answers. So I decided, forget all that. I'll, ch- I'll show you how to do it. And there was this... So if you get a, a plate in a jaw, you can put a plate there, and you can take a pectoralis major flap, which is a special flap, which you can create uh, using the pectoralis major mm-hmm. muscle here with a bit of skin on it. You can rotate it into the jaw and make a flap. So I... Because... Over Skype, they'd never done it before, and also it was difficult to over Skype to tell people how to do things. They had me on a selfie stick in the middle of the operating theatre, and so I was there. I was um, looking into the operation, saying, "Right, make your cut here, make your cut there, do this, do that," and it was amazing. It, eight hours later, uh, the man had his jaw reconstructed. It was just fantastic, and I had never felt so. I remember going home to see Ellie. I said, you know, we've just done the most amazing thing today. We've uh, reconstructed the man's jaw over Skype. But that was the sweet thing, apart from... But the bitter pill later was that um, I am 100% sure that the Skype coordinates from my office in London and the Skype coordinates from their hospital in Aleppo was being looked at. Because eight days later, a bunker-busting bomb fell directly onto their operating theater in exactly the same spot where the operation took place. So how do you you still help people in war zones? The answer probably at the moment is no, because you don't want to put them into trouble and realize that their hospital, you know, if you help them, uh, their coordinates can get taken by somebody else. So it's a really bad thing to say.
1: That's a really bad note to leave it on, because we've now run out of time. Can you think of anything Anything more cheerful to say?
0: (laughs) Uh, Yes. I mean, um, the surgeons that we trained uh, in Idlib this time, they sent me a a message recently, a little child that came in, and they'd learned the techniques that we'd taught them, and they put in all the drains, and they'd, uh, they'd, they'd even created their own little chest drain bottle Um, um, I think the baby was uh, seven months old and they had a picture of the baby and they had a picture of this little chest drain bottle and they were so happy that they'd saved this baby's life and sent me a picture
1: Good, thank you